All right. Excellent. Let's get the show started. Welcome back, everyone, to Behind the Shield. I'm your host, Marco Estrella. I hope everybody had a, a nice Halloween. I know it's in the middle of the week, but for everybody who had uh, kids like uh, like I do, hopefully you're not eating too much of their candy and their chocolate. Um, unfortunately, that's my case here. Um, eating too much chocolate in my uh, in my office. We're just uh, waiting a few uh, seconds before we get uh, fully underway. Um, but uh, yeah, have you? Uh, do you have any kids, uh, uh, Chris? Did you uh, have to do a deal with the Halloween? I did, and and my son was uh, creative in his request because he basically made us get him two costumes. He wanted to be uh, a zombie policeman, so we had to we had to get the zombie makeup going. But he also loves the police. We so wanted to be a policeman, so we had to work that out. And then my my daughter went as your uh, one of the one of the Disney princesses, so that that wasn't too bad. But uh, yeah, we did. We uh, we got to to do all that, which is a lot of fun each year. Very awesome. good. Which Very princess? Good. I gotta ask. I've got three daughters, so it's uh, it's oh. always important to know which ones uh, <laughs> the kids are dressed up as. This this year was Elsa. Uh, okay. We uh, yeah we um, you know she liked last year was Ariel. She she goes through the uh, the spectrum of her favorite, and uh, actually uh, our uh, our she went with our CRO to her uh, to to go see the new Ariel to the Little Mermaid movie recently. So she was really struggling with which one she wanted to to go with but uh yeah she ended up landing on uh on elsa to me it's all which color dress i guess but uh but yeah it's, it was uh, ask Chris, make, make sure uh, what, happy. what's an ai costume look like oh an ai <laughs> costume that's it that is a good question i think uh ge generally it's like the the robot from uh what was that will smith movie that's what uh it seems like everybody is using right now to to show their AI systems, like just kind of like the the bald head, like mine. But yeah, but, uh, I, yeah, I am. What was it again? <laughs> I robot. Uh, there you go. I, I robot. robot. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, exactly. It, it seems exactly. like the robots and those are being used like for uh, for every depiction today. Yeah, AI costumes. That would have been <laughs> maybe maybe you, you could have gone with uh, uh, like a, a name tag. You know, uh, and a backwards baseball cap name tag says. Hello, my name is Chad. And then you could be Chad GPT. Hey, okay. Get on with the show. I don't <laughs> all right, all right. We're gonna get we're gonna get started before this goes too far. <laughs> so, so welcome. I got, let, let's take it back from the top. Welcome back, everyone, to Behind the Shield. I'm your host, Marco Estrella. I'm glad that you're with us today live. Um, and we're happy that you joined because it's going to be a great show. We have a great show lined up for you this month. We have our friend uh, Tito from Hidden Layer. Uh, he will he is joining us as our spotlight speaker this month, and you won't want to miss his talk about uh, on safeguarding artificial intelligence. We also have a ton of hot topics. As usual, we had to pick and choose. Um, you know, our panel of experts uh, had to make some hard decisions. So uh, among the stories we're going to touch upon this month, the Okta breach continues to have costly ramifications. Uh, artificial intelligence uh, is generating convincing phishing. Uh, Johnson Controls is dealing with uh, a breach. And uh, our producer, Jen, uh, her credit card troubles during her vacation and much more. Uh, topics... Uh, topics that didn't even make the, the the cut this month is like topics that just just came in like the the Boeing breach, uh, the CDW breach. Oh my goodness, it's just uh, it's chaos out there. It seems. Um, I won't lie. Anyway, I still I still keep checking and refreshing just to see if there's any Boeing data being released by uh, by Lockbit. So uh, we'll. I think uh, I, I think when they took down the Boeing information from their site that. Um, Definitely signify that uh, ransoms are being negotiated, is my guess. So I'm I'm waiting for for Johnson Controls to issue their Q4 uh, earnings statements that's supposed to come out today, and mm -hmm. they're not out yet. And uh, who knows if they're going to be out soon? They can't produce their financial statements. So as you can uh, hear, if you're on the show live, lots of topics, uh, lots of things to to get to. So uh, before I get to that. If you are new to the show and you'd like to catch up on past episodes, you can find them on virtualguardian.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can download them there. Uh, so let's get to it, shall we? To help me navigate these hot topics, uh, we have, uh, as I mentioned, are my trusty panel of experts. And they are Patrick Naum, Virtual Guardian's CEO, 
How's it going? Hi, everyone. From our office in Minnesota, we have Bill Strube, President of Virtual Guardians U.S. Operations. Good hey, afternoon. Bill. And as a special treat, a special trick-or-treat for us this month, uh, we have a special, our spotlight guest has agreed to uh, join the panel this month. So it's Chris Sestito, who I called Tito before. He goes by, he likes to go by Tito. Is that right, uh, Tito? That's right. Thanks for having me, everybody. I'm really excited to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, Tito is co-founder and CEO of Hidden Layer, a cybersecurity startup dedicated to preventing adversarial artificial intelligence attacks. And uh, Chris, uh, Tito has over a decade of experience uh, leading global threat research, intelligence, engineering, and data science teams with a focus on security uh, products at organizations such as Silence, Qualys, and Agari. Um, our for, for those who are not familiar with Hidden Layer, Tito, can you tell us about, um, you know, all about Hidden Layer? Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So we uh, we uh, uh, founded an organization specifically uh, to secure artificial intelligence in all of its forms. It's the fastest growing, just uh, most pervasive technology out there in every industry for all of these use cases. And so um, that's exciting, but it's also one of the most, if not the most vulnerable technologies out there when, and, uh, you know, a little bit later when I get to share more on uh, on that in Hidden Layer, I'll, I'll be able to, to dive in. But uh, it's really something that's going to affect all of us, especially with artificial intelligence converging on a lot of these the existing technologies we have to secure, like, you know, you have LLM starting to replace search engine technology. We have neural networks present in operating systems. Um, it's really a scenario where uh, even even for traditional cyber uh, defenses, we're going to have to start uh, understanding how to secure artificial intelligence. And so uh, that's exactly what we do. Okay. Okay. So you're at, you're like the um, part of the spearhead of the artificial intelligence uh, movement, uh, I'm guessing here. Did yeah, you, uh, right. it, 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 this also, just came across I'm, i might be a few days late i don't know but uh it was just announced that quantum computing has cracked the rsa 20 uh, 2048 it's cracked so quantum computing cracked it and uh so rsa is now deprecated or they're actually sorry uh the group that did the uh the, the that did it are calling for rsa to be um crack so i don't know if artificial had a artificial intelligence had a, a role to play in that but um it's just nuts that you know uh things are moving so quickly with ai and and quantum computing and those two i think are are pretty closely closely linked together that uh, did, did you hear about that one by the way or, or am i just the one that's a little bit late behind the times D definitely aware of it i think it's, it's interesting too and, and to your point about how closely related they are i think it's 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 super interesting to keep track of because you know quantum computing is, is sort of the the route to to really uh, growing at an accelerated rate on the hardware side as well, which is is sort of the limiting factor today in artificial intelligence. And you know when, when people ask me about you know all the all the doomsday scenarios with AI, I tell them like don't worry, the GPUs can't do that yet, but but maybe soon is based based on the the you know the uh, acceleration that quantum brings to the game. So uh, you're you're absolutely right to consider them sort of uh, linked topics in in terms of what that means for all of us. Yeah, I find it very interesting the fact that we've waited for the artificial intelligence, and then of course we all know the story. You know, Chat OpenAI comes out with ChatGPT, and all of a sudden Bard comes out, and another one comes out, and another one comes out, and not even a year later, quantum computing uh, is is cracking RSA. So it's just like uh, they've been at it for many years and it just uh, both of them in the same year. Anyway, that's behind the top. I don't even have time to, to, to get around all that. We can make a show, probably do a whole show on that on that topic. But um, we got to get to really important things. Um, uh, I'm really happy to have you on the program. We have to get to the most important topic, uh, a serious issue to deal with, uh, gentlemen. Our producer, Jennifer, uh, went recently on vacation. And um, she was a victim of credit card fraud and, uh, during her vacation. So other than uh, recommending safer destination spots to Jennifer, <laughs> do you have any credit card any credit card safety tips that we can give Jen for her future travels? Well, I, I think that the, uh, the, the she, she said she had it protected and um, and uh, always within a uh, a protector that uh, is not supposed to be easily read by uh, those looking right. to actually just scan your device. So that's, that's good news. Uh, I don't know about uh, you, but I always look at um, uh, wherever I use my credit card, whether it's a swipe or, or uh, chip and pin, 
Mm-hmm. It looks fishy. I, I don't I don't use it there. So the other thing I don't like doing, I hate to say it, wait staff is always a, a question mark in my mind when I hand it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. You have to keep visual, you know, visual a visual on the card at all times right and that's why they have to transact i mean yeah what i'm fascinating i'm I'm based in in montreal canada is that the pin is not prevalent in the u.s i mean i'm still signing on credit card receipts uh, whereas here it's pins everywhere other than you know transactions that are under 200 dollars i could tap if not the pin is required so we have and it's the same in europe and everywhere else in the u.s it's not uh, it's not everywhere yet Price really? tap was available everywhere in Iceland, but it's not available everywhere here in Minnesota. So that, that was one thing I thought was interesting. Oh, yeah. Sorry to hear that, Jennifer. It's it's happened to me a handful of times too. My my uh, my defense is usually not to have any money, but uh, there is um, there you know it really it's becoming more prevalent of an issue. And and I think uh, you know, Bill, that's a that's a great call out too on sort of the fishiness of the device. I've actually uh, was pumping gas one day and and noticed that there was a, a loose. Um, and or a loose sort of point on the on the third part where I was sticking the card in, and I pulled it right off, and it was a reader sitting right on top of it, and so that was that was here in Austin. So I mean, it's got to keep an eye out for that, and and you know the uh, the vendors themselves aren't even really aware that it's happening. So um, you know, gotta gotta be careful there. Definitely gas pumps. Is, is that sitting on your desk, Tito? Uh, well, it wasn't mine. No, I uh, I threw oh, right okay. in the trash. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, it's um, it's definitely uh, it's scary out there because it's quick. To, it's 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 getting easier and easier to have access to these transactions. All right. So uh, hopefully uh, those tips, Jen, are, uh, they'll help you out. A couple of other things that uh, uh, with a quick search, uh, you know, not to bring a lot of cards when you go on a trip. Just try to bring the one. Uh, in case you lose your wallet, you don't have to deal with uh, canceling many of them. And if ever you suspect anything, you know, call Visa, call them, uh, or or Mastercard or Amex. Oh, if, you have one, make, if you have one, make sure it's not an Amex because Amex is not accepted everywhere. Oh, all right, good point, good point. And um, yeah, inspect the ATMs for card skimmers, just like Tito mentioned. So those things are. They're, they're 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 sneaky and uh don't trust helpful strangers i think you know but that's that goes without saying but uh good point maybe about wait staff when you give your card and they bring it to the back better than bringing the machine to you or you going up to the cash register i think that'd be a better idea i think jen will be uh well off after this uh yeah, this she's gonna get she's traveler's checks you think next time yeah <laughs> she's good <laughs> one of those in years <laughs> all right great um let's get to our uh, hot topics um bill you are up first and um our guest is going to be talking to us about ai a little bit later on and it just so happens that's the topic that you chose for us and uh ai as it relates to cyber attacks can you fill us in yeah and specifically to phishing but i think you know one of the the thoughts i have regarding the story is that um you know one i think that Tools like ChatGPT, Bard, and so on have so many things that offer from a fantastic and worthy productivity perspective that we we do need to learn how to leverage those tools and make them better. And yet at the same time, it's pretty easy to use those same tools. um, And if you tune how you search and specifically the context you feed them, they can easily provide results that are going to be used for uh, nefarious purposes as well. And that's kind of the uh, the background around uh, CSO Magazine's uh, generative AI phishing fears realized as model developed highly convincing emails in five minutes. So wow. the, um, uh, the concern has been talked about quite a bit. In fact, uh, Abnormal, uh, a vendor out there, has talked about the concern that uh, is growing across CISOs and across their client base. But what I thought was pretty interesting about the story is uh, IBM's X-Force, which is their team of ethical penetration testers or ethical hackers, however you want to view them. Uh, they showed it within five different prompts to ChatGPT how to create a highly convincing uh, phishing attack. And it's and again, it's all about the uh, the specific context or the information that you feed it. So they were looking at healthcare organizations, and they they actually did A/B testing. Uh, Eight hundred emails that were going to be sent using a phishing campaign that was generated by ChatGPT versus one that was done by the um, the pen tester himself. I, I believe it's a him. So if it's if I'm wrong, there I apologize. Um, 
But they, they basically asked ChatGPT five different, four different things. And then final ask was for it to actually to create the email. One was uh, to focus on the top areas of concern for the healthcare industry. Uh, and so they focused on career advancement, job stability, and uh, fulfilling work. Uh, what techniques should be used? Uh, so they basically shows trust and authority or social proof. Um, how should it be used to, to personalize the uh, the information? Who should it come from? Human resources. And then they didn't actually provide the actual query that they fed into ChatGPT, but the output was a very highly and very convincing uh, email that was from a vendor to uh, to an organization that um, that was very compelling and compelling to the point where uh, it had an action 11% click through rate, which is for uh, for a phishing email is pretty darn good. Um, the other thing that is interesting is I read the actual email. It's, it's actually in the uh, the story, which will come out of here as well uh, if you look at the notes. But it's, it doesn't have any of the, the telltale signs of the old phishing techniques. There's there's not misspelled words. The the English and grammar are are correct. I mean, it's it looks like a fairly legitimate email. So it was it was pretty interesting to see that that particular email did get uh, again eleven uh, percent click through, which was beat by the human generated email just by a little bit. Uh, the one that they did to the, their A-B testing, they had a 14% click-through rate on the one that was actually written by the uh, the social engineer or, or hacker. Um, and so it just, it just goes to show you that the tools are catching up. The capabilities are uh, making it far better to create professional-looking information, whether it's, again, used for bad in this case or used for good, like uh, helping uh, helping write content. Uh, if you do, make sure that you claim that ChatGPT helped you. Um, and the the other thing that was interesting about this particular story was that the uh, the, the AI was reported suspicious more often than the human generated, fifty nine percent versus fifty two percent. So uh, they they point out that the the humans have the advantage now as far as being able to create uh, uh, relatable and accurate content, but it is definitely, definitely catching up as a uh, chat GPT and other tools are catching up as far as um, authenticity and making it look real. What I'm wondering if, if I may jump in is how come, you know, our email marketing campaigns, lead generation campaigns are not generating 11% uh, click through. I mean, there's something to be learned from this. <laughs> Well, there's actually quite a bit of AI marketing happening out there right now. So I think that um, I think that people are learning from it. And a lot of the things that I'm starting to see in my inbox, I can tell are uh, AI generated. Uh, no one that I knew what personally would write those particular emails. I'm like, okay, this is this is too good. Someone someone used ChatGPT for this, in my opinion. Uh, they need to edit it a little bit better, make it a little bit more personable. Um, All right. But I guess the only thing to add on to this, I think we might talk about this with uh, with Tito here in a little bit, but um, uh, that particular story came out one week ago today. Just want to point out when we're talking about AI, on Monday here in the United States, the Biden-Harris administration actually released an executive order. Uh, an executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy artificial intelligence uh, to set new standards for AI safety and security. Um, I'm going to stop there in hopes that we talk a little bit a little bit more uh, today. But um, interesting read. If you want to find out more, you can go to whitehouse.gov on that or uh, ai.gov, which is uh, an interesting site to talk about um, how you could potentially use AI. But in my opinion, when looking at ai.gov, it seemed more like a recruitment place for the government to find folks that, uh, that have uh -huh. AI capabilities and skills. Proactive organizations that maintain an efficient network are more likely to prevent an attack. Let Virtual Guardian put your network security at the forefront of your organizational strategy with a network security assessment. Identify security vulnerabilities, help prevent risk, downtime, security breaches, and loss of revenue with a thorough assessment from Virtual Guardian. Contact us at virtualguardian.com. Interesting. A very, very uh, important topic, Bill. I think that that it's uh, you know, and we can chat a little bit more about it later as well. But 
but it's a, it's, it's a, in my opinion, a huge step forward to see that. And it's, it's interesting to see that because uh, again, for such a pervasive technology, we, we haven't really had much uh, of, of any infrastructure around it to support it. And I'm a big believer that we should be holding AI to the same standards that we hold traditional technologies too. And, but there's a correct way to do that. And there's, there can be some intrusive ways to do that. So it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a hot topic right now. We're seeing a lot of response uh, from those in the AI world um, and, uh, and, and, you know, some that are, concerned at which layer we're securing AI. Some believe firmly that it should be in an application layer security uh, driven solution and some believing that it should happen at the model layer. And, and, uh, and so it's, uh, it, it can be pretty complex, but, but I think at the, at the broader level, we should really be thinking about, you know, are, are we holding it to the same standards that we hold other decision-making mm-hmm. engines? Because mm-hmm. that's uh, ultimately, um, you know, what it is. And so that's a um, super, super interesting topic, Bill. Didn't uh, didn't President Biden just sign an agree uh, uh, an executive order that's on it. this? Yeah, yep. that's what yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, well, excellent. Uh, thank you, Bill, for the insight. We're, we're going to yeah. move on. Just before I forgot to mention to uh, to those who uh, listen to us uh, live, uh, when Tito comes to uh, do his talk, you can put your questions or actually questions regarding any of these hot topics as well, not just a spotlight talk, but you can put them in the Q and A section. Uh, of the Zoom, and then we'll try to get them at the end of the podcast. So moving on to the second hot topic, Patrick, you're up. Uh, You wanted to talk to us about the critical situation at uh, Johnson Control. What's going on over there? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Marco. And I just want to commend uh, Tito because, yeah, he probably, I don't know if you guys agree, has the best voice we've had in uh, just over a year of podcasts. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like radio voice. It's good to win at something. I'll I'll, uh, I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) I had to call it out. Thanks, Tito. Uh, You'll be reinvited. Yeah, so Johnson Controls, I I wanted to, obviously, you have a lot of, uh, you know, we've heard about Boeing, and there's a lot of things going on, and ransomware attacks left, right, and center. I just wanted to stop on this one, because a couple of things attracted my attention. Number one, it is a huge company. Uh, Johnson Controls is the, it's a a conglomerate uh, following the merger of Tyco, uh, they used to be based is is a what Wisconsin based company now they're based in Ireland, hundred thousand employees, two thousand sites, one hundred and fifty countries. The ransomware attack uh, came from Asia, from their Asian operations. So far, uh, so far as we know, multi billion dollar company. So that's one aspect. It's it's as a multinational company, are companies that have branch offices. You know, how do you make sure to 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 have a homogeneous uh, cybersecurity policy, if you will, and and making sure that all your sites have the same standards of security must be extremely difficult. At the same time, they have the means to get it done, right? And that's actually a challenge that they, they're going through right now. Um, it also highlights the fact of supply chain uh, or downstream considerations. If you know a little bit about Johnson Controls, they're all about uh, HVAC systems, uh, industrial control systems, uh, climate control systems, physical security. So not only were they attacked by a ransomware um, uh, event, uh, which happens to be Dark Angel, and it, it was targeting their VMware uh, ESX environment with the ESX decrypt- encryptor, um, encryptor ransomware attack. They also had are a victim of a 27 terabyte exfiltration uh, scenario. And it's caught the attention of the Department of Homeland Security because uh, they are a contractor for federal agencies, Department of Defense. So you could imagine the security issues that that may arise. It, it, we don't necessarily know yet that DHS is on the case. They don't haven't publicly uh, and probably will not publicly divulge. You know what buildings or what was compromised but um you could imagine that if it is um if if in those 27 terabytes of data if there were uh floor plans ventilation duct plans physical security plans it is a serious national or can be a serious national security incident and a lot of people are saying you know there's millions of contractors in the uh, for the federal government there are security standards, but a lot of the people from the industry that were interviewed for following this 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 hack, you know, they mention it says there's not necessarily any consequences so far. There are no penalties. Nothing. There's no accountability uh, for contractors dealing with the federal government uh, other than just having minimal security requirements. Okay, it's one thing, and as we know, you could have solid security 
systems and requirements and still be compromised. So what are the what's the accountability level of, of those contractors dealing with the federal government and, and these agencies? So that was one of the the challenges in terms of, of downstream uh, supply chain uh, impacts, if you will, of, of such a hack. The other thing that I attracted my attention is the first time I actually stop and look uh, to understand what a, uh, a Form 8K is uh, for the SEC, Security Exchange Commissions. For those of you who do not know, you need to divulge all sorts of information through the Form 8K, including material breaches or cybersecurity incidents. And it's the first time I stopped to look at what the wording of a company is, because I have to say that throughout uh, the hack, you know, Johnson uh, controls were forthcoming. Obviously, as is always the case, or most mostly the case, you're advised by your clients, right? They were they have like ten different brands uh, under you know under the uh, Johnson Controls banner. So at some point in time, you can have a a, a client going onto a portal and uh, you know starting to see either uh, interruptions of service or messages that you know highlight issues. You know that that's usually the first way we learn about a, about a hack, but they were forthcoming in terms of writing the information of this happened end of September. Um, and this is, I'm, I'm just going to take, forgive me for reading, but I, I think it's important to see, you know, what these publicly traded companies uh, write up. So Johnson Controls International has experienced disruptions, portions of its internal information technology infrastructure and applications resulting from cybersecurity incidents. So they identify it. Promptly after detecting the issue, the company began an investigation with the assistance from leading external cybersecurity experts and is also coordinating with insurers. The company continues to assess the information, what information, sorry, was impacted and is executing its incident management and protection plan, including implementing remediation measures to mitigate the impact of the incidents, incident and will continue taking additional steps as appropriate. To date, many of the company's applications are largely unaffected and remain operational. To the extent possible and in line with business continuity plans, the company implemented workarounds for certain operations to mitigate disruptions and continue servicing its customers. However, the incident has caused and is expected to continue to cause disruptions to part of the company's business operations. The company is assessing whether the incident will impact its ability, ability to timely release its fourth quarter, quarter and full fiscal year results, as well as the impact to its financial results. And the efforts are ongoing. And I've been monitoring their their Q4 results should come out today. And they have not come out as of just before this uh, briefing. I'm monitoring that. So you can immediately see that their, their reporting is affected. If you go on their website, there's not a lot of information other than the 8K. They pretty much hit all the points in this in this uh, 8K uh, submission. So that's it's interesting. They covered all the angles. They're addressing it well, but the impact is is unbelievable. Patrick, mm -hmm. just a quick question. Um, does it does the article or was there any other data that were uh, that was provided would make you believe that it's like Boeing in the sense where they have this 27 terabytes of data and they're holding that data hostage rather than uh, traditional ransomware where they actually install you know the uh, the ransomware, encrypt the device and hold that machine hostage or the data hostage on prem. Yeah, it's a double, uh, double. Uh, it escapes me. Uh, the, yeah. the double attack, like ransomware and uh, data theft. They actually, thanks for asking the question. They were asking the hackers, uh, Dark Angels were asking for fifty-one million dollar ransom. Fifty-one million. And we don't know whether it's paid or not. No indication that it was. They will probably have to divulge it if they do. But for the moment, they have not. But there is a ransomware request, and it is to, to your point. Uh, related to the uh, data exfiltration. What a troubling trend on the ransomware side. I mean, we, we've started to see more and more of these uh, events end in not just the encryption and, lo and loss of the data, but the actual uh, exfiltration and, and, and it's in some cases dark web and in some cases public web publishing of, of private data. I mean, we've been seeing that for a few years and I, I believe it started with Chimera ransomware back in like 2015, 2016, where the, where the threat wasn't, you won't get your data back. The threat was, we're going to give it to everybody. So, you know, give it to everybody is, or sell it to somebody else. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. I mean, any, anybody dealing with the private cases. And so it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a troubling trend to see because it's, you know, it's, it really starts getting people, you know, liable for, you know, for PII as well as just generally speaking, like it's a, it's extremely damaging to the brand. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's hard to watch. 
improve efficiency and productivity by streamlining processes and automating tasks. Enhance customer experiences with more intuitive interfaces, launch products, and break into new markets quickly. Application modernization helps you to adapt to changing needs and improve your overall performance. Contact Virtual Guardian to learn more about app modernization and APIs for your organization at virtualguardian.com. Thank you, Patrick. We're, um, uh, we're going to skip ahead and I'm going to put our guest, Tito, to work. Uh, pulling double duty. Um, I was supposed to be next, but we're uh, we're running a bit shorter on time for the hot topic segment. So I'm going to ask you, Tito, uh, to talk about your hot topic um, related to AI. You wanted to talk to us about emerging AI regulations and their effect on innovation. So um, I'll give you about uh, two minutes, two, three minutes, please. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important. I, I mentioned it earlier, but I think it's really important to echo because um, it, it's just really important to hold artificial intelligence to the same standards that we hold other technology. And, and uh, that, that means a lot of things. I think that with, with several folks, artificial intelligence in some cases can be a little bit of a black box. When, when you see a determination or a classification or some decision that a model is making, and you don't have sort of the supporting math to determine how that was done. And that becomes really complex and, and, and sort of a sensitive topic when you're looking at things like decisions made around people, you know, why did I get approved for this loan? Why did I get declined for this loan? Uh, but then it can also get to, to be a very dangerous sort of implication when you're looking at things like if you trained a model to predict the disease, but you didn't train that model on, you know, every uh, group of per people that are out there, or there was some other inhibiting factor for even getting uh, data into that position. Th these are the types of things that really need to be heavily regulated. And, and generally speaking, they are in other technologies when it comes to things like the heavily regulated industries and in finance and insurance and healthcare and, and other areas there as well. But we, we should be holding artificial intelligence to that same standard. But the other side of that coin that I think is very important to mention at all as well is we shouldn't hold it to higher standards than and in some cases, standards that uh, require even more burden on those who are uh, here to innovate and here to allow artificial intelligence to improve our lives and improve the lives of, of, of everyone uh, on planet Earth. Um, and and we're seeing some of that in, in some organ in some countries and and some of that as well. So I, so I absolutely applaud uh, the administration for having the executive order yesterday. I'm. I'm Excited to see more specificity around it because it's very—I uh, I would generally call it vague—in uh, terms of, of of what we're claiming that we're about to do. And uh, and I would really, really urge anyone who needs to involve to to in, involve cybersecurity. I, I think that that's uh, something that a lot of folks need to really be aware of. Is when we talk about sort of the vulnerabilities around artificial intelligence. That needs to be a cybersecurity conversation as much as it is a data science conversation. Uh, I think when you start looking at uh, things like you know mo model hardening and some other approaches that we've seen in the past, dating back to like white papers from early 2012, that's generally been like a data science uh, uh, problem set, requiring a data science skill set in order to to deal with. But uh, you know how we found it hidden layer, and I'll talk about it here in just a moment, was like what if we treat models like endpoints? What if we held them to the same level of of scrutiny on the cyber side? And and that that requires a cybersecurity mindset. And so I think that we need to see the cyber community involved heavily in uh, securing artificial intelligence in the same way we would say, you know, recently with the migration to cloud or, or just ultimately data in general, uh, that that's a, an important part. So, so I, I'm really glad we're taking steps in the right direction because um, artificial intelligence is a little bit of the wild west right now when it comes to what's being deployed out there, but we don't want to slow anything down and we don't have to. If we do this right, we will actually allow for organizations to take more risks to deploy models in places that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to and, and to innovate even faster. And I think that should be the goal. Uh, and and we have to do it responsibly, which is where all of this comes into play. Yeah, we, we don't want to see a Skynet, uh, Tito. Another <laughs> we don't, we don't. But we're uh, uh, we're we're in we're in you, you know the the real threat is people, and uh, we we have a very very long time to go, even in the hardware side, before we have the ability for models to spin up models to you know create uh, generative intelligence that can then spin off and decide what it's going to even operate on. We're, we're still very much in the world of, of a human being has to tell a model what to do. And, you know, my my, uh, my joke here, if you've seen war games, is like, you know, if, if I wrote a terrible piece of software in Python that said, you know, if X, Y, and Z happens, launch the missiles, uh, that would be crazy irresponsible. And, and I, I wouldn't blame the the programming language for doing that. I would blame the human being who decided to, uh, right. to, do, to do such an irresponsible thing. And that's absolutely the case with artificial intelligence as well. 
the the risk here is people we are nowhere near the ability on the hardware side to even allow for a skynet type of situation so in the meantime it's going to be people who abuse artificial intelligence and those who deploy it irresponsibly that's going to create the scenarios that are really going to harm society and so i really want us to focus on the pragmatic issues uh moving forward because i get asked that question all the time like what's what's preventing you know terminator 2 from happening right now and then and, and the answer is like we're not there yet what we really need to worry about is state actors who want to abuse this technology yes, for the same yes. motivations that they're abusing others absolutely yeah, you know, absolutely do you, do you think we have potentially some uh, unintentional biases. I mean, we're nowhere near democratization of uh, of AI, and it really is the um, the wealthiest nations that have access to that technology. So, are there some fundamental flaws, just in inherently who has that type of computing power and what Absolutely. we're using it for? Yeah, I think that's a really, really, really great point, Bill, because because it's not just about uh, who has the ability to interact with the generative model, but also. Um, you know, where are we getting this data from and and when where did it originate and and who had access to that or influenced that? Because uh, you know, you're absolutely correct. And you know we're we're seeing that in in medical testing issues. We're seeing that in uh, in all sorts of predictions in the fi finance community. We're seeing it in cybersecurity where, where we look at models that are you know uh, looking at you know what were behaviors like in 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 interactions with technology that we would want to track to be able to make determinations like is there a malicious or, or benign behavior going on right now? And so, um, so that's absolutely true. And, and and when you think about it, machine learning operations has really only been around for about three or four years. And, and that's where we even started doing things like versioning data sets and understanding what model went where and how long it's been there and what it was trained on. And and so those those are the things that we can hold organizations uh, accountable for. Those are best practices that you would you would expect in any sort of technology. I don't think it's it's outrageous to say, you know, hey, what data did you use to put in front of this model? And that, now that, that starts to get more complex on the generative side when you've trained it on the entire internet. Or to your point, Bill, the internet of those who have been had access to it. And when you start cutting corners for things like that, those data sets are not going to be well representative of the real problem. But one of the things I like to, to call out, because while that's an incredibly important issue, that that issue of sort of, you know, the bias inherent to models and the responsible AI deployment, uh, while they're related, those are very different from the security issues with artificial intelligence and keeping threat actors out of that. Because because you have to worry about both. You have to worry about what your AI represents, and then is that really what's what's out there, or is somebody manipulating it? And I think that that's it's it's important to call out both sides because some of those biases are inherent to the data and the problems we need to fix at the development stage, and some of them are because we have threat actors abusing them in real time. Good point. So, so which leads to the question: How do you guys do that? How do you guys uh, detect uh, AI poisoning or data source poisoning? Yeah. Great question, and and if you know if it makes sense to kind of go into my my spiel on hidden layer, then uh, you know I think we uh, um, we we looked at this problem actually born out of a real world problem, and so uh, myself, my co-founders, we worked at a company called Silence, uh, where we were using machine learning models to detect threats, and that was a really important step forward in the artificial intelligence space. Uh, you know, back in 2012 when when Silence was founded, because back then, uh, you know, antivirus was pretty much just signature based detection it was just lists of bad things and and if we were if we knew about the bad thing and it was on your machine we'd, we'd quarantine it but um you know that threat actors caught on to this and said well we don't really have to be more sophisticated we just have to write newer threats faster that that aren't part of these signature based detections and and so uh machine learning became the only technology on the planet that could take a look at an artifact that we had never seen before and then make a an accurate prediction of whether or not it was malicious or benign. And that's exactly what Silence's machine learning models did. But in 2019, the machine learning model that we used for our Windows product was attacked and, and not with a traditional cyber attack, but actually with an adversarial machine learning attack. It was essentially threat actors interacted with our model in the exact same path that we wanted our customers to interact with our model for and and or through. And that created a scenario where these threat actors, just through using our product, were able to reverse that model. They were able to understand the model's feature space, or which is essentially all the variables the model considers uh, when it's making a decision. And they were able to stack rank those by importance. So um, they, they were able to take all of those sort of things the model would consider and know how important the model considered it, even in a dynamic neural network scenario. Uh, they were able to understand the decision space, the output of the model. They knew where it was making high confidence decisions. They knew where it was making low confidence decisions, where it was going to be easier to abuse. Um, they knew ultimately, in this case, it was a it was a cybersecurity model. So they were hyper interested in things like, uh, you know, what does the model overly associate with good? So I can start attaching that to bad things and get that to trick the model. And uh, so ultimately, they took all that information and they performed what's called a surrogate attack, and they were able to recreate our model offline. And then they used that offline model to attack it, and they learned 
which attacks would definitely work. And then they brought those on, uh, online and conducted them. And so um, it really woke us up to just how incredibly vulnerable this technology is. In this case, at the edge, when we want folks to interact with a model, um, whether it's the public or customers, but then also every element of it was. Myself and my my now co-founders at Hidden Layer, we, we led the response effort uh, to that issue. And, and ultimately, it, it just showed us how incredibly vulnerable this technology is. It's vulnerable at a code level. Um, when you think about you like to take like a Microsoft portable executable file, right? There's there's a lot of security infrastructure over the last 30 years built into that. When we think about things like we sign these files, we have very strict permissions of where you're allowed to read to or read from, write to, and, and execute from. Um, you know, we 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 list all of the code we're importing from these files. We have security versioning information. None of those things exist in machine learning. None of them exist in machine learning models or those model files. And so it kind of creates a, when I say wild west, I mean, you can really do anything you want with a, with a machine learning model. And so um, the hidden layer team has already found thousands of examples of models being abused in the wild, like hiding executable code and weights of models, or really just abusing the fact that you can put executable code wherever you want. Um, and, and just organizations not even really paying attention to the fact that current endpoint technologies don't even parse model files. So, so you're essentially able to use it as a vehicle for malware, and we've identified those too. Um, so we created a solution for that that I'll talk about here in a moment. But then we have uh, what we call, um, or we have the real-time models problems, just like what happened at Silence. We have when models have been exposed at the edge and, and, and people get to interact with them because they're intended to be interacted to. That's just as exposed for threat actors. And then uh, the third issue is uh, LLMs and generative solutions, where we have uh, essentially almost like network-driven problems with somebody interacting, an organization interacting with a model that's hosted by OpenAI or Anthropic or one of these other solutions, um, where you now have prompt abuse, you now have uh, response uh, data loss issues. Um, we also have, uh, we're tracking a new attack type that we've been uh, researching called indirect prompt abuse, where maybe a threat actor goes and changes a wiki page and puts some malicious code in that and then says, hey, ChatGPT, go to this page and execute that that code. And then that's creating a scenario now where uh, we're seeing uh, essentially that that sort of inadvertent level of where you can hide code in some other area and then execute it uh, there. And, th and then lastly, when I when I talk to CISOs about all of this, they say, wow, that's a lot of vulnerability. That's really scary. Like, but where is all my ML? I don't even know where it is. I think that uh, that that's creating a scenario now where, you know, if you're using a nice ML ops platform that helps helps you out on the cloud side, but with sites like Hugging Face and Kaggle and all these others, uh, you're you're getting to a point now where any anybody in your organization can download a model onto their laptop and use it. So uh, it, it's creating a scenario where there's almost like a shadow AI problem. And so to deal with all that, we we came up with, and to answer your question, Patrick, we we came up with uh, what we call the hidden layer machine learning security platform. And we wanted to solve this problem holistically because we know customers don't want another ten security vendors to deal with based on um, you know now the 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 problem on the AI side when they're already dealing with twenty and, and their traditional cyber. Um, so we really wanted to solve it holistically, and and the uh, the world in in adversarial ML space really started publishing some research around 2012, and 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 the solution at the time was what's called uh, robustness or complexity. Essentially, either injecting noise or injecting complexity in your models so that it was much harder to navigate by a threat actor. And and, and you know, for, as security professionals, we we didn't love that approach because that was number one as a third party vendor. That's really invasive. You're basically saying, "Let me get in there and start playing with your IP, and uh, and start making some changes, and hopefully, I don't break it." Uh, and then that also makes your models a lot more expensive. And then lastly, it's a per model solution. So uh, you know, enterprise organizations that have a thousand models doing a thousand different things aren't all that interested in having to go through a thousand solutions. Um, so so we said, as as I mentioned earlier, what if we treated models like endpoints? What if we took the last 30 years of development of cyber on endpoints and and shaped that to form fit models. And so we, we looked at EDR solutions and we evolved that technology to a deal with machine learning models. So we call it MLDR. Uh, and essentially what that allows us to do is by looking at behavioral interactions from requesters of the model and the model itself, we can see if somebody's using the model as it was intended to be used, or if they're doing any of those types of techniques that would allow them to reverse that model or allow them to poison the model or ultimately expose and uh, and uh, um, like where it's making its least confident decisions, these types of things. So uh, that's to protect those models in real time. And, and one of the major value uh, or, or, or most valuable scenarios around uh, a lot of what we patented in our IP is we can secure those models very generically. So if it's a learning, if it's a you know a deep LLM, a, a deep uh, neural network, if it's a simple linear model, we can protect it in the exact same way. And we also don't need to see any of the raw data. So 
if you're working in, you know, some sort of, you know, private data, whether it's, you know, some of our government accounts on the, on the, uh, you know, um, DOD side or, uh, or something along those lines, or, or whether it's uh, just, you know, financial data or healthcare data that needs to be, we don't, we don't want to see any of that. What we do see is after that raw data has been measured by the model in a process called vectorization before it goes into that input layer, we want to work in those vectors. And that allows us to operate in that, in that generic case, but also secure those models. And so, then on top of that, we built a code scanner for models. So you can think of it just like antivirus for models that parses through models, looks for executable code, th these types of issues. And then uh, ultimately, we created an LLM proxy to, to apply that same technology to hosted models if you're using something like OpenAI or, or uh, anything like that. And then lastly, we created a discoverability tool so we can answer that question of where is all your ML so you know where all these vulnerabilities exist. Um, but we we took a very, uh, we, we, we addressed this problem with a cybersecurity lens and we looked at you know, what was going on and how do we secure this? How do we empower security operators working in a SOC to defend models in the exact same workflows that they defend their endpoints? Interesting, interesting. Uh, it begs a question. Um, I'm gonna to try to be clear with my question because it touches on a lot of points. As you're going to market with your solution, you know, if typically, you know, years ago when we were starting talking about AI in Montreal, we had a lot of AI uh, startups, as you know, um, and we try to talk about security, we would mm -hmm. often fall on deaf ears, right? Because yep. if you look at the ones that were driving the show and they're the ones that own the models and the data or the data scientists, mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, a lot of work is research-based. It's open sharing environment yeah. other than, you know, advanced DOD research or maybe in pharma, but a lot of it was centered on university research and, and yeah. whatnot. Are you sensing that? And in a lot of a lot of organizations, the CISO doesn't really have less and less, but doesn't have you know not I wouldn't say control, but oversight on that part of the business. Are you seeing more and more awareness and openness from the data scientist community towards your solution, and not even your solution, but towards cybersecurity and the vulnerabilities of their different right. models? It's a great question, and, and that persona challenge is one that we kind of had to, to deliberately address when we when we first got started because it does create a scenario where you're talking to CISOs who don't necessarily have a deep understanding of the the uh, data science technology, and then you're also dealing with data scientists who don't really share the motivations with the CISO, and they view this as something that might slow them down. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. you know that that uh, now ultimately, I would say that's also shifted quite a bit uh, since uh, almost all my questions like that I answer pre chat GPT and post chat GPT. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, pre-chat pre GPT, it was very much that scenario where it was very difficult to sort of uh, help uh, everyone understand really what's going on. And there's two major factors that have kind of shifted that in the favor of awareness. And that number one was chat GPT. And number two was all the different automated adversarial machine learning attack tools that exist today. So uh, there is uh, over 40 just on GitHub that if you want to attack and reverse a model, you don't have to be a data scientist. You don't have to be an exploit developer now. You can just go on to GitHub or other repositories, download these attack tools, and then conduct your attack. Sim similar to like Metasploit from like the early 2000s, what we saw in traditional cyber. The, all of those automated tools now exist. And so I can show those both to data scientists and CISOs and very clearly represent the threat. I mean, these are this is what we're going on. One of the easiest things we do uh, and, and, and most important things we do with, with our solutions is identify, hey, somebody's interacting with your model with one of these known attack frameworks right now, because uh, very, very easy to automate that and spread it across the web. So uh, I think that that's, uh, um, it, that helps. Uh, you know, we're about 80-20 in terms of CISOs and, uh, and data science groups. There are certainly some data science groups that reach out to us and just say, hey, we want to protect our work. We don't want anybody coming yeah. in here and taking the last five years of our research and recreating it in two weeks. So uh, so that, that tends to be the motivation on that side. But CISOs are getting more and more aware and boards are getting more and more interested in challenging their CISOs to secure their artificial intelligence. I think it's actually really similar to the uh, to the migration to cloud, right? Like right out of the gate, that was a little bit more of like a SecOps and uh, and DevOps type of of uh, role to be concerned on the, on the privacy and security side with the migration to cloud. But after about a year, 18 months, you know, it became a line item for a CISO to have to secure that. And so I see a very similar scenario here. And I think we're, we're nearing the end of that, that kind of initial phase where, you know, it's, it's really becoming a CISO's responsibility very quickly to protect every asset in the company that has to do with technology. And then this uh, isn't any different. There's not going to be any more bandwidth available for CISOs when you think about it. It's it's a Keep tough adding one. and adding it, and adding a, to the realm of responsibility. You're, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's one of the hardest jobs out there, but, but I think, 
if you were to start stack ranking what matters to your to your customer base and to your and to your organization the most ai is very quickly rising to the top of that and so i think it's going to have to cut through that that long list of the uh, long to-do list uh from these uh from these CISOs. hackers ransomware natural disasters do you have a recovery plan when disaster strikes get peace of mind with virtual guardians managed backup services we put our expertise at your service to monitor, manage, and optimize your backup environment, both on-premises and in the cloud. Contact us today at virtualguardian.com. And, and Tito, maybe going back to, uh, to what you're talking about regarding the data scientists themselves, mm. it's amazing how many quote unquote, new data scientists I see out there. They they weren't a data scientist a year ago, but right. suddenly today right. they are. Um, oh, yeah. With the raise of the uh, the need for people to hire data scientists, obviously that yep. creates demand and people willing to just say, yep, I can do that. Yep, 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 do absolutely. Do you find as though that you've got clients who really have data scientists and then they have folks that really just, they, they have data. <laughs> absolutely. <Wrong engineers. laughs> yeah, I think that there's, there's a, there's, you can also measure it in data science companies too, right? Like I think we, we went from having, you know, an enormous shortage of data science professionals to all of a sudden records of, of, uh, of data science created companies and VC backed organizations. It was like 9,000 this year or something like that. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's funny how that's happening now that there's, there's legitimate reasons behind that, which is that machine learning models are getting a lot easier to create. Um, you know, when I started building them back in the, um, in my earlier days as a reverse engineer to help me with like the obfuscating state actor threats and finding encryption keys, um, that, that was, uh, tough to do. You had to build a model in Python. Essentially today you can spin up one of these tools and say like, Hey, PyTorch, build me 2000 models and tell me which one performs the best. And then I'm going to use that. So, so it is a lot easier to be one. I, I actually personally believe the data scientist role itself is going to shift pretty significantly because you, you don't really need to have all of the innate math anymore in your, in your brain, at least. You just need to know what tool is the right thing to use. And so I think you're going to start seeing more data professionals be specialized. And you'll have like cybersecurity data professionals and healthcare data professionals and and this kind of thing that, that are, they're, they're all going to sort of, the tools themselves are going to be table stakes and it's going to be understanding of the data that's going to separate you and make you interesting to an organization. Um, but but you're absolutely right. I mean, j just like there's a shortage of cybersecurity professionals, there there's a shortage of, of data scientists and it's really the, that, tooling that's catching up and the automation capabilities there. Um, but, but it's, you know, it just, just like anything else. I mean, if you're, you need to be using good data, clean data, you need to understand it. Well, the other half of that models are getting easier to build. They're not getting any easier to extract value out of. And so you still always have to have the ability to, uh, to understand what you're building and making sure it's, it's a legitimate, uh, and, and well-made system with, with, with good representative data of the real world problem set that that's not getting easier. That still requires, uh, a lot of good uses, but but there are certainly those taking advantage of that. Absolutely. Maybe a, another follow-on question is um, kind of off-topic as far as uh, how you secure AI models and data. Um, but you've come from a cybersecurity background. What do you see as far as the potential benefits of AI as it relates to most of the folks listening to the show? They're they're cybersecurity professionals hoping to find some sort of edge or way to use AI to make their jobs better, maybe yeah. slightly easier. What do you see coming down the the pike next six months, year, two years to uh, to achieve those goals? Great question, and it's a really important question because while AI is certainly like you know expanding the threat landscape like crazy, it's also giving us a very powerful tool to deal with that expansion. And, and I think if I were to pick one area where that's the most useful, I think it's in a sock. I mean, there, artificial intelligence does incredibly well with different data sets from different sources and having to align them, compare it, make determinations around that. So when you look at like an XDR type of scenario where you're trying to understand, you know, some some data from your network log, some data from your endpoints, some data across the board, and then at a very high level of trying to pull out the signal from the noise, that's exactly what AI was developed for. And so when you start looking at like, um, you know, generative tools and LLMs and the way that they can pull all that data in and start raising that up to the next tier to say, you know, here's where we need to actually focus your time and attention. I think we should, you know, really embrace, and, and some organizations already are uh, with, with like secure chat GPT versions and, uh, and, and other ways in which you can start analyzing all of that. And then, and then I think it also um, will help just on the behavioral and identity side quite a bit. Um, when you start looking at, you know, how to look at, you know, is this person, um, 
truly who they are purporting to be. I think artificial intelligence is really well positioned to solve that problem too. So I think we're going to start being able to see things like not having to be as reliant on passwords, not having to be as reliant on, um, you know, uh, different scenarios that would require or, or, or generally lead for an opportunity to, to, uh, uh, misalign or, or intentionally sort of uh, misrepresent who you are. I think I think we, we're seeing some major advances there, and we're, and we're already seeing a lot of security companies uh, come in uh, come out of stealth now uh, to to try and take advantage of that technology. So I would say it's it's just as much of a tool to help us fight the fight that it is one that could create some problems for us. Awesome, thank you. Uh, no, absolutely. Uh, I know the uh, I'm close to the uh, Virtual Guardian SOC, and. Um, Right now, uh, we just finished implementing uh, the automation, uh, so the uh, SOAR tool in the SOC, and uh, always trying to automate and always trying to leverage, you know, artificial uh, intelligence tool, machine learning tools to, because it, it the the, uh, the the team there is like it's like drinking from a fire hose. We get more oh, yeah. and more customers. There's more and more events. There's more and more alerts, and that's oh, yeah. just how it goes. And at one point, you can't scale with humans. You got to scale with with tools and solutions and whatnot. So uh, well you're preaching to the choir. Absolutely. But you, um, you heard it first here. You heard it first here. MLDR is going to be part of the roadmap now. MLD, there, you there you go. You heard that's it right. here first, folks. <laughs> um, so I'm going to check if because we got about five minutes left to the show. Uh, it was it, it, we just like moved organically from your hot topic straight into your your spotlight talk, uh, uh, Tito. Uh, so that was awesome. great. And um, I'm just gonna check. Let me double check here real quick. There is a question. Which, I think there is a question here. So uh, it's anonymous attendee uh, for someone say healthcare that wants to train AI to compare results of an X-ray. What's kind of a high-level way to ensure that PII is not being exposed through the the AI? Good question, anonymous. Should have put your name. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question, and, and it's, yeah. there's, a, there's a couple answers to that, right? So, so I think that uh, there's the data side of things. So, if you're if you're if you are collecting a whole bunch of, for example, artificial intelligence, or sorry, a whole bunch of different X-ray uh, data points, and, and that so presumably that's the actual file itself. Um, so, so first of all, that that alludes back to Bill's question around sort of like, is that actually well representative of the real world that you're creating that model for? Which I know wasn't part of the question, but it's an important important sort of issue there as far as like, where did I get these from? If if it was only people who are willing to volunteer this type of data, or or, or did I have, uh, you know, sort of the ability to have to ensure that that data set is well representative of the real world space and 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 those who this model is going to be uh, analyzing in the future? I think that's that's a really important call out. Um, so, but there's a couple steps you can take. So, so number one. When you vectorize that that sample set, or you you build that sample set uh, in a in a set of vectors that the machine learning model can now recognize and and go through that that process, um, you don't need to to so to work in everything. There's ways to redact parts of that data set and still maintain a high level of efficacy from the from the model itself, and that can keep you, especially if you're working with a model that's that's somewhere else, um, from having to send everything you know over a network to get there. Um, but then there's a lot you can do with the tool set itself. So if you're building that model, as I believe your your question uh, sort of implied, um, you need to make sure that, like in most scenarios, mo most data scientists are not building a model from scratch. Uh, they're starting with like a pre-trained uh, model that they can then further train and build off of. So in an X-ray case, if you're looking for like classification of like is you know a, a disease present or something along those lines, um, you're probably working with some kind of like visual classification model. Um, so the first thing you can do is make sure that that model is legitimate. Make sure that it's, you know, for example, if you're grabbing like ResNet, a, a visual classification model that Microsoft developed off of a tool like Hugging Face, ensure that that's exactly the one you're working with and not one that a threat actor pre-poisoned or, or built some code into and then put that up there, that solution. So ensure that you're actually working with those models and you're not inviting something malicious that could be exfiltrating data into your organization. So if you're working with the right tools and then you're growing from there, then it becomes like a question of who has access to that model um, you know, are you, 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 you want to secure that you want to use a tool like MLDR to actually measure that model during its, its interactions to ensure that nobody is enumerating that feature space or looking to abuse or poison the model, any of those things as well. Uh, and then, uh, you know, control that access to the model only to where it needs to be. And then always keep in mind that these attacks can always be part two of a traditional cyber attack. So if somebody got into, uh, an area where you are also hosting models, uh, through some sort of whether it's an insider threat or a different set of illegitimate means uh, that behavior then you should still be looking for even if you believe it's a closed off area because a lot of the attacks that we work with 
uh, are those who gain, gained access through a traditional means of a, of a cyber, you know, maybe some sort of network attack. And then they found the model and then conducted the adversarial machine learning attack. So mm. keep an eye on that, always monitor it uh, and look for those anomalies or use a solution like ours to detect the attacks themselves. So we're in overtime mode. Uh, are you a gentleman uh, still good for a few minutes? Tito, do you have a, you're good. Everybody's thumbs up. Okay, great. Because uh, my question is just, exactly what you just mentioned there uh when you just finished uh, chris what uh what are the vulnerabilities ai vulnerabilities that your team is seeing right now uh what are you guys seeing uh, qu quite a bit i think that you know especially in, in models that are out there you can almost really mirror it to what we see on endpoints so so the motivations are the same we're seeing vulnerabilities in fraud models to try and uh, like sort of get around them so you can commit more fraudulent transactions. We're seeing those trying to steal things like algorithmic trading models. We're seeing people try and steal just high value models that are like recommendation engines. Like if you're recommending what movie to watch next or what song to listen to next. And uh, these are high value models that are generally speaking very exposed. And so uh, we see that as well. So there, there is inherent vulnerabilities there. Um, so all the code vulnerabilities I described, those are, those are a major issue. Uh, there, there's really no security infrastructure with regard to code for these machine learning models. And so you can execute code wherever you want. We've even seen threat actors hiding malware in weights of models. Uh, so which, which really shouldn't even be uh, code at all. It should just be, it should just be values, but it's a great place to hide things because again, no, no endpoint security solution prior to ours and, and is really looking or even parsing through these models. So uh, it's, it's really important to, to look for that. So we, again, we see the code vulnerabilities. We see the real-time vulnerabilities where you want your customer to interact with this model, and that makes it inherently very exposed, and threat actors deal with those same pieces. And then we see the generative side. In fact, one that I just had a, an important meeting with a, with a, um, one of the major banks at this morning is one of my major concerns, which is that some state actors are in, intentionally contributing vulnerable code to open source repositories like GitHub so that these yeah. generative code writing solutions learn to write vulnerable code from them and so that's that's creating a scenario where we're even poisoning the uh the uh generative uh code writing scenarios and we've even seen automated attack tools to do that now uh, and so you know really the uh the options are endless on the threat actor side until we start building up some some infrastructure and start getting these solutions widespread so yeah we're, we're seeing them uh, all over the place what uh <laughs> One last question from the audience from Ming Fu. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, Ming. How do you address AI hallucinations? Wow, I guess that's a Halloween question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a really good question. And if this is the Ming Fu I know, hey Ming, he's a he's a great guy, and I'm happy to hear from him. Um, but uh, it's a uh, it, it's something to address. There's there's two versions of that. There's the AI hallucination that's that's common with the model. So if we have essentially a scenario where the model is uh, is creating something that you wouldn't have expected based on uh, the training data it had access to and the way in which it was built, the hyperparameters used, all, all of the sort of optimization techniques within the model, and it's creating something outside of the scope of what it was intended to create, uh, you would call that a hallucination. Now, we, we don't necessarily address the inherent version of it. What we do address is when we have uh, bad guys trying to intentionally create hallucinations within a model to get some sort of uh, of result uh, that, they're, that they're hoping they want the model to hallucinate in a certain direction. Um, there's ways to do that with poisoning. There's ways to do that with uh, with tampering with the model itself. That's exactly what we address. And, and so hallucinations is sort of just another version of how you would explain that through the AI side and the AI terminology. Uh, our version of that in cyber would be like, okay, I'm going to start tampering with the parameters of this model or actually the model's code itself or ultimately with the data that's going to be used to train the next version. And that's even scarier because an iterative or cyclical learning solutions where you're going to use the prior model to train the next model, if you've been able to abuse that first model, you've permanently damaged that system uh, because it will always use the prior version to train itself. And so, yeah, we, we absolutely do. And a lot of what we do and what we call uh, in that MLDR solution is going to address hallucinations directly. Beauty. Ming Fu uh, sent another message saying Tito is the best. So there you go. <laughs> uh, thanks, Ming. Very, very nice evening. <laughs> the uh, the show is coming to a close. Uh, it was jam packed full. Um, we even get time to to, to touch on the Octa breach and the uh, Psycho breach, the, the the five hospitals in Southern Ontario. Uh, I guess it'll, we'll keep all of those for uh, for another time. Uh, Tito, that was really really interesting, really great. So Thank we're you. gonna go to the uh, the close of the show.
Um, so um, basically, it's just a, a couple of thank yous. I want to thank you, uh, Tito, for taking the time uh, to spend uh, with us today on uh, Behind the Shield. Really, really fun. Um, Bill, Patrick, as usual, uh, my uh, trustee panel, thank you very much for your insights. Thanks, Thanks your, Jim. It was, it was really, really great. A uh, quick reminder, next month, because of the holidays, there won't be a live uh, Behind the Shield um, in December. So we'll see you back here in January. Uh, hopefully fully rested with uh, brand new, or we're going to have brand new guests and, and brand new spotlight talks and brand new hot topics, I'm sure. If you've missed any part of today's events, and uh, the show will be made available sometime next week, uh, anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. So a big thank you also to all of our listeners. Without you, this is not possible. And remember, as always, if uh, when you're behind a shield, you're ahead of the game. Thank you, everybody. See you next time. Thanks, right. folks. Thanks, Tito. Thanks. Thank you, Take guys. Care.